I don't want this to turn into a Red Bull commercial, so I'm going to open this before we start. <laughs> I know. Shh. <laughs> well, t- not technically. I had that on the way here. So, because I need to teach through a lot in a very short amount of time. Go ahead and get started. <sighs> Let's just go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for what you have done for us. We're grateful for your word. We're also grateful for the simple things in your word that we can get just by reading through it once. Um, But in this case, Lord, we're grateful for something that is going to be a lot more complicated. We ask that you help us to handle your word delicately, um, precisely, and help us to understand everything that is inside of it. I ask that you give us unique insight as we're going through it today so that we can be able to grasp even more of the breadth and the length of your word. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are going to do a very quick summation. I wanted to start with something that was a little funny that uh, Julia showed me, which is the two greatest Christian salt and pepper shakers. I'm sure you can figure out which one is going to have salt, which one's going to have pepper. Very crude. But in any case... Back to what we were working on last week, we were talking about the subject of Romans 9. Now, I'm going to try to summarize as best as I can, because we went through a lot of material in those 12 verses, which is probably the fastest you could teach Romans 9 um, while being true to the text. So just kind of remember, the basis of the church at Rome is basically this. It was mostly Jewish at the instigation of the church almost 100% Jewish. You had proselytes, you had Jews. But then what we know is that Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome and then it became a Gentile church. And so by the time they returned under Nero, you had a largely Gentile Roman church with Jews in it, but they were no longer the spotlight. And so what Paul is doing throughout the book of Romans, it's not just Romans 9. There, we, we looked at a few of them last week, but there are many references to the Jewish people, references to the covenant moving forward. And that's ultimately culminating into this insertion in, the, in Romans 9. Now, a lot of people treat Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a parenthetical insertion where Paul's just taking a step back and talking about a different subject. We made the point that although it is a different subject from Romans 8, we we talked about that last week, it's a big, big change. It is the natural outflowing of Romans 8. Because if you remember, Romans 8 actually finishes talking about the promises of glorification of the church and all of the wonderful promises that God has made to us in his church, this new body of believers. And so the natural question that someone may have Um, like if you were a Jew is, well, how can I possibly believe in the promises of Jesus in the church if it doesn't look like all of the promises he made to Israel were fulfilled? And so that's largely kind of where we're going with this. And so we worked our way through Romans 9. We talked about um, the different promises that were given to Israel in verses 1 through 4. Uh, going forward in verse five, we talk about the fact that they were given so many blessings that they even got the Christ. Jesus came from Israel. 
And so moving forward, he then answers a, a common objection, one that he is anticipating any reader to have, which is that it is, verse 6, not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And we talked about that at length, because what we're trying to do with Romans 9 is, to make up a word, we're decalvinizing Romans 9. Because this has been used as a proof text for this idea of election from eternity past for many, 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 many years, many centuries. And if uh, a Calvinist teacher starts teaching about Romans 9 and he keeps talking about salvation, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get you to tune your brain to the idea of salvation so that when you get into the problem text, you get into this idea of um, Jacob I love, but Esau hated, that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and all of these other things, that you're thinking about it in the scope, in the lens of uh, salvation. Because if you think that, it's game, set, match for the Calvinist. That being said, I emphasize at length that Calvinists are some of the most beneficial members of the church. Like if you're looking for good references on apologetics, if you're looking for good references on even homeschool material, you're, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to get away from that. Like they do a lot of good things, but in this area, they mess up. They make a mistake. They're reading their theology into the text. And so I've worked at length to try to prove that because if you can have a conversation about Romans 9 and you're able to actually go through it and be able to reconcile the differences it sets you up for success for the rest of scripture. Now, if we don't do well with Romans 9, then it can be an effectual proof text for the Calvinists as they come forward. And so that's why it's worth taking our time. The reason that we're doing this, and you've noticed that most of what I've taught about has been like the rapture of the church, the different viewpoints, mainly because it strengthens our ability to navigate the text of scripture in eschatology if we're able to better explain opposing viewpoints. I've also spent the majority of the last few times I've taught talking about apologetics, because if we can't defend the faith that is in us, first of all, we're actually violating one of the tenets of scripture that we get from Peter, where we're supposed to be able to give a defense for everything that we believe. Again, faith is not blind. We don't blindly believe things. Um, and so this falls into it too. Like if, if we really believe that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is talking about Israel, then we need to be able to defend that. The way that we do that is understanding how these Old Testament quotations are used in this section. Because if they're just used as analogies, which is the way the Calvinists would look at the text, well, okay, well, if these are just analogies, then I can interpret them however I want to. And if I believe as the Calvinist teacher, again, making an example, disclaimers aside, um, that this is talking about salvation, I'm going to look at them as analogies to prove my point, that this is all about God's choice some for heaven, some for hell. And then that's kind of the stem at which, at which we're going at. Um, so in any case, that's kind, of, that's kind of what we've been trying to accomplish. Now, just remember, we talked about the fact that not all are Israel who are descended from Israel. That is like tattooed to the arm of every Reformed theologian who hates uh, dispensationalism. We talked a little bit about that. We explained what that actually means. We explained that as we move forward, that it's God's choice sovereignly who he's going to allow the promise to go through. He gets to choose. He was able to choose that if you want to be a member of the nation of Israel, I'm going to choose from eternity past because everything's from an eternity past when you have an eternal God. Again, they try to make a big hyper-focus on this idea of eternity. 
you could say any decision he's ever made is an eternity past decision, right? So it's it's not a, again, it's it's a moot point. They're trying to move it forward to push their theology. But in any case, he decided if you want to be a member of the nation of Israel, you have to not only be descended from Abraham, of which many nations are, you can't just be a descendant of Isaac, although many nations are. You have to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have to be. Um, this also keeps in mind the fact that there were, uh, I mean, we have Ishmael, right? We have Arab nations that link themselves back to Ishmael. We have the, the sons of Keturah. That's six other, na- six other people. Nations stem from them as well. So like, but God chose in his sovereignty that he was going to do it through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not only this, but the sons and descendants of Isaac and Jacob through Abraham are the ones that are going to carry the promise and blessings that God promised to Abraham. That's what he's trying to say here. And so when he says that not all Israel is are Israel, okay, well, we talked about that, right? Because he mentioned that earlier in the book when he said that not just circumcision of flesh, but circumcision of the heart. Like in order to be one of the people in history past, pretty much the entirety of history, right, of the nation of Israel, in order to obtain the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, you had to do what? You had to be part of this remnant that God has always retained throughout the history of Israel. There's always been a remnant. There's one right now. We call it the church. There's a remnant of national Israelites within the church. And they don't lose their Jewishness because they're part of the church. We don't make a huge deal out of it because they're a member of the body of Christ. But we have to keep in mind that that is the present tense uh, remnant of Israel. So moving forward, we, we talk a lot about these things as we're going through the text, as we're looking at verse 8, going into verse 9, um, about Sarah having a son. And then we talk about Rebecca in verse 10. Again, this is all review. This is all what we talked about last week. Um, and there was a lot of information there. So I would remind you of what we already spent some time on, if you have any questions. And so we talk about how she had twins by one man. And then we talked about how these twins were warring against each other and how God had chosen. And this is the fun part before they were even born, before they even had the chance to do right or wrong, he had made his decision about who the bloodline was going to go through, who was going to receive that blessing. That was going to be Jacob and not Esau. Now we talked about how it is an argument can and has been made that Esau was a saved individual. People argue with that. I, we can leave that to the, to the Twitter threads. They can argue it on their own. Um, but I think, I think it's, there's a reasonable case to be made because of the example from Hebrews chapter 12. So like as we're looking at this, just kind of keep that in mind. And what's more is if you actually trace the, the life of Jacob and the life of Esau, Jacob was terrible. Um, he was a deceiver. That's what characterized everything he did. Esau actually gave him grace, right? After they met the second time, Jacob, guilty conscience, thought he was going to be destroyed. And Esau welcomed him in and said, come with me. And he said, no, I'll be right there. Just you go ahead and go first. And then immediately went the opposite direction. So like, just kind of keep in mind like that God's choice has nothing to do with, in this scenario, whether or not Jacob was going to be better than Esau. And what's more is that it had nothing to do with salvation it was the sovereign choice of who he was going to allow the nation to come through. So what 
Calvinist attempt to do throughout this entire section is to divorce the idea of nations from individuals. Because if they can make this about individuals, like we talked about before, they can try to game, set, match it and try to make this a salvation issue. And that's what they attempt to do. Not really understanding the thrust of the main argument. What we're trying to do, and we've mentioned this before, is we're trying to observe what's in the text. Look at the Old Testament quotation and think, okay, well, the majority of the book of Romans was written to Jew and Gentile. This section, though it is also written to Jew and Gentile, is focusing on like the Jewishness of the text is so much more focused. So we have to keep in mind that Jews would have been looking at this and they would have had certain things in their mind. And so as Gentiles, though this is more difficult for us, we have to be able to look at what these Old Testament quotations were actually saying and then be able to make an observation of what he was actually trying to go for in the text. But we have to start with the Old Testament and go to the New Testament because it's actually hilarious. If you listen to um, debates about Romans 9 between Calvinists and the um, non-Calvinist, I'll say that because there are different formats and people who all disagree with Calvinism, um, their main arguments always stem from this idea of nation versus individual. And so far, there's not much about individuals. There are individuals who ended up as nations, and we see that through the Old Testament quotations. We also see that through history. But at the end of the day, we kind of have to keep in mind that that's the stem of the argument. So that being said, and we're going to move, we're going to move quite forward because, again, that's, that's a lot of information, but where we left off was verse 13. So let's go ahead and read this idea where it says that, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Okay. That's pretty significant. Let's talk about that. So what does hate actually mean? Does this mean that Jacob I loved and am going to give him eternal future in heaven and Esau, therefore I hated. So this is my separation. I'm trying to make this point about salvation. Well, okay. Well, it's miseo is the word in, in the Greek. And it can mean three things, essentially, just on the way that it's translated. The three main ways it's translated is to hate, detest, or to love less. That's really important because we have to keep in mind what he actually means, right? So in Genesis 29, verses 21 through 31, I'm not going to read all of it, but if you look at the last verse in 31, it says, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Now this word is the same word that gets translated as hated in the Septuagint. So, and he said, and he, God opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. What's the context of that? Well, that's, Jacob worked seven years trying to get who? Rachel. Who did he get? Leah. Maybe you should look first, right? He just went ahead. It's kind of terrible. But that's kind of the situation that he had. And how many sons did he have through Leah after that? Do we know? Six. Perfect. Um, and a daughter, Dinah. So we have all of the, it doesn't sound like he hated her. I'm just going to make that statement just right now. It doesn't sound like a lot of hate was carried there. But he loved Rachel more. And he loved her more before he had been wed to Leah. Why he chose to marry a second woman after he had already been married to another woman for seven years, I have no idea. But that's the beauty of the text of Scripture is that Scripture doesn't decide to pick which good portions they put in there and which bad portions to leave out. They just give the truth. 
right? Because this is not a flattering picture of Jacob. Again, this factors into kind of his character as a person. But what does this actually mean to hate and to love? Because we don't really talk this way. We don't talk about, and I'm going to make the argument that it, has, it pertains to this idea of preference of one over another. Well, we have uh, Bill Mounts, who has written every solid beginning textbook on the on Greek says that the strong contrast, love and hate, is a Semitic idiom that heightens the comparison by stating it in absolute terms. Well, we see this too. Like some, one person might say, I hate McDonald's, but I love Taco Bell. Nobody's ever said that, honestly. Most people hate both of them. But just keep in mind, like that's kind of what they're getting at. So we have this in Luke 14, where it says that now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying we actually have to lividly hate our, our family? No. He's saying you need to prefer me over your family. And the separation between that preference needs to be a large gap. It needs to not just be a small one. That's what Jesus is saying there. He's not saying to hate, but you would know that, right? If we, if we spent more time in scripture and we looked at how this idea of love and hate are actually used, it, it makes a big difference. So keep that in mind. So if this is saying Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, why do we have to jump to salvation? What, how, where does salvation even factor into the text? It doesn't. That's the point that we're trying to make here today. Now, verse 14 says that, what shall we say then? There is no just injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That's meganoito. There is no stronger negation in the Greek. There's, he, may it never be. Like, don't even think about it. Don't consider this. It is, it is an incredibly strong negation. So no, there is no injustice with God. That's what Paul's saying. Okay, pretty simple. We can move on to verse 15. Now, verse 15 says, for he says to Moses, ooh, we're changing this a little bit, aren't we? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Oh, well, very good. So what is he actually talking about here? Well, this is a reference back to Exodus 31 and 32. Now, or 32 and 33, sorry. So if we read the first 10 verses, and we're not going to go into, into length on it, we get this picture of Moses being on top of the mountain and God saying, you have to go down to them. I'm going to destroy them because they have made a golden calf to an idol. And I will start the nation over with you because he could, right? Because of his descendancy. And then what does Moses do? He intercedes for the nation of Israel and God says, I will grant you favor. So God put him into a position where he had to be an intercessor for Israel, which sets the tone for the rest of his ministry, right? Now, what, what was the background of this? Well, they, the people were tired of waiting on Moses. So the natural next thought is we need a golden calf. Now, um, the Lord told him to go back because the Lord intended to destroy them. And what actually happened that day? Well, we know that 3,000 men died that day. And what was the choice? The choice was whoever's on the Lord's side and whoever's not on the Lord's side. And it was a separation. And the people who willingly went away were the ones who were killed. 
And this was a punishment for what they had done because were these saved individuals coming out of Egypt? They were. We, we learn about that. That's actually where we get our best picture of redemption in the Old Testament is actually the people who are carried through the, the Red Sea and leave there. And we see them all worshiping the Lord. And so what is the point that Paul's making here, though? He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what is God actually choosing? Well, these are, we're talking about saved individuals in this context. So is he, he's choosing to have mercy. Could, could God have just killed all the Israelites? Absolutely. Would he have been righteous to do so? Yes, he would have. Because it's God. If God chooses to give grace on whom he gives grace, compassion on whom he gives compassion, and mercy on whom he gives mercy, is that also just? Of course. Because he's sovereign. He's God. He can choose to give us mercy. The fact that he even made a salvific provision for us in Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. He didn't necessarily have to. We're evil. We're humanity. We're dead in our sins. Like we, we are so separated from him that it would be perfectly righteous for him to just say, you have transgressed against me. But he knew that we would, and he made a provision to make it so that we could be righteous before him through faith in Christ. That's something that he decided on. But again, is this talking about salvation? Did it switch to salvation? So far, we haven't seen this topic at all. Now, you could say there are undertones and overtones, but we don't translate and interpret scripture on the basis of presumed undertones. Yes, Richard. Okay, so the point that, um, that Richard's making is that the people that chose God, if I'm understanding this correctly, would have been the ones who were saved, back talking about Exodus. And then the people that would choose the calf would just be the ones who weren't actually saved. I've, I've heard arguments for both, and I've heard arguments saying that everybody who exited Egypt would have been saved. Now, what's interesting, and the reason that we normally think that they wouldn't be, right, is because how could somebody even remotely worship a golden calf and still be saved. That seems so opposite to what we would anticipate from like from a person who's a saved individual. But what we have to keep in mind is that the saved individuals in the situation who chose the Lord were also people that worshiped the calf. And so the argument is that and if you follow like the the logic that they're saying like the things that they're saying like let us do this because We've clearly been left behind. Like they've forgotten what he did for them. So I, I've heard arguments for both. I, I tend to fall on the line that thinks that all of them were saved and that they were in, um, they hardened their hearts against God by in sin, which we can all do, right? If we just keep, continue to sin willingly after knowing a knowledge of truth, we can actually separate ourselves from fellowship and get to the point where we're just taking up space, 
And so I would take that position. Um, but I've also heard people try to go the other direction. But that's that's my perspective. That's what I get from the text, if that makes sense. Um, good question, though. Very good question. So um, within that vein, God is the one who gets to determine who he's going to have mercy on and who he has compassion. So when God gives mercy on somebody, he can determine that because it's all on top of the this idea of depravity. So if God decides to give mercy, that's awesome. That's fantastic. That's totally not deserved. And I, it's funny, I actually heard a Calvinist say this. He said that people always get upset about the fact that God was unjust towards Esau. They should be more upset about the fact that he was overly just towards Jacob, right? And that's a great point because having a good understanding of the actual weight of our sin changes how we perceive God. And it changes how we walk with God. If we think our sin isn't that big of a deal, we are separated from a correct understanding of what Jesus actually did for us. So moving on, verse 16, it says that so then, okay, keep that in mind. Building on the last pocket of information, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Um, Well, just kind of keep in mind, I'm going to take us back to Romans chapter three in verses 21 through 25. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So again, when it says it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, obviously you see what Calvinists would extrapolate from this verse. They're saying, well, it's not your will doesn't matter. Whatever you do, the man who runs, right? Your works are irrelevant. God is the one who determines who's going to be saved. Again, because if they can read salvation into every single verse in this chapter, you can try to make a case for in an isolated section, right? Because if you ignore everything we've discussed about Israel, everything we've discussed about God's choice, his sovereign choice to choose the nation he wills to choose to have mercy on those he has mercy, compassion he has compassion. You can try to read salvation into this. And again, you could possibly extrapolate it, but that's, and you could make your own points, but that would not be an inspired usage of the text, right? And so when we're looking at this, keep that in mind. When it says it's not based upon, think about Jacob. The best way that you can understand verse 16 is to remember Jacob because it's, not based upon, again, from eternity past, God said, I'm not looking at what the twins are going to do. I'm not looking at who they're going to be. I'm making my sovereign choice in spite of who they're going to be. And um, yeah. And so if we're looking at this in that context, it's not on the man who wills. Like we don't get to determine God's mercy and God's choice. That's his decision. He's, He's the God. He's sovereign. We don't get to shake our fist at him. He's the one who created the universe. Why do we even like to pretend like we have a say? He gives us the ability to choose to follow him or not. And that should blow our minds again. 
but it's based upon the God who has mercy. Now, moving on to verse 17, pretty empty slide there. Um, It says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth. Well, what is he referencing? Well, I, I made a scripture verse there about Joshua, but let's start in actually Exodus 9. Verses 13 through 17, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your peoples with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. I'm going to read that last part just one more time. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. Well, in Joshua... If we want to start in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it, and they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua basically had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted craftily and set out envoys. And then took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins and worn out torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread and the provision um, was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal and they said to him, to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And then Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord, your God. For we heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the Sihon king of Hezbon and Og the king of Bashan, who is with Ashtaroth. So, not only did God rescue the Israelites, not only did God provide for them and give them mercy when they didn't deserve it and carry them and redeem them through this process, this wasn't just about Israel. Because remember the Abrahamic covenant when he said you were going to be a blessing to all the nations, all the people? This was to bring the fame of the Lord out to the nations to bring them to Christ, to bring, well, in, to God in this particular dispensation. And so when we're looking at this, he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power to you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Again, that is why he allowed Pharaoh um, to do what he did. But that then gets us to this next point in verse 18, when it says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. This is a very difficult concept in scripture because of the idea of God hardening. Because if you read it, whether you're reading it in the English or the Greek, it is an active thing that God is doing. And so now 
I told you the purpose of this is to give you the Calvinist uh, perspective on it and then to show you why that perspective lacks theological grounding as well as scriptural grounding. So when they say he then has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, well, what does it mean to harden? What does that actually mean? Well, look at every instance of hardening and try to find salvation in the context. Try. I, I challenge you to do that because I haven't been able to find it. But what I have found is that every instance, and we don't have the time to get into it. Like I said, this is like a big picture, large brushstroke flyover of Romans. Um, is that every time God hardens an individual, it's, he's not hardening them so that they will not be saved. He's not hardening them for like an active purpose um, to prevent them from coming to a knowledge of truth. He hardens them because they are sinful, because of what they're doing. So if you actually trace through Exodus in this hardening, you're, and I'm, I'm doing this on memory, I encourage you to read it. Um, what we have is Pharaoh, God saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh. Okay, well, he doesn't do that yet. What we see is Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens. Pharaoh is hardened. Pharaoh is hardened. God hardens Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens himself. And so we get this idea of God as a judgment on Pharaoh, hardening him in the position that he's in so that what? So that God's name can be proclaimed among the nations. Because God is using Pharaoh's stubborn mind to force the situation where God can take the firstborn, where God can take Israel out of Egypt. Again, for his namesake. Like it reminds us of Ezekiel and Isaiah and that, like God doing things. I'm doing these things for my holy name. It, the same idea is what we're seeing here. And so when God's saying he hardens whom he desires, well, Absolutely. He totally does. I see no problem with that. But I also don't see how this has anything to do with salvation. Because keep in mind, we're thinking about God's working with the choice nations. We've studied what the word choice means. It's not uh, a, cho a decision for salvation. It is a statement of um, the value or worth over another. It's like a, a choice, like choice steak at the store. Like it is the nicer cut of meat. And so just keep that in mind. The, the heart, like, um, I think it's Robbie Dean, and I, I like how he refers to it. He calls this judicial hardening because it is hardening on the basis of a judgment against that person or that individual or that nation. You, we see that Jesus and God hardened the Jews so that they would do the crucifixion, so that they would move forward with that because that's what had to happen in his will and his plan in order to get the wonderful salvation that we enjoy. Um, granted, w was he forcing them to do that from the get-go or did they repeatedly harden their own hearts against Jesus, plan and devise plots to destroy him? And then eventually he said, this is certain, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to harden you. You're going to crucify me and this is the blessing. And you know what? I bet a ton of those Jews were there at Pentecost and were saved in those people that were saved in Acts chapter two. So just kind of keep that in mind, like the hardening, even if you were going to argue that it's hardening of individuals against the Lord, it, it's not necessarily permanent either. It is hardening for a purpose as a judgment against them. So I encourage you to look at that holistically, like as we're going through the text, because there's a lot of information there. 
Verse 19, it says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? This is one of the most misunderstood verses in this entire text, which is staggering because the whole text is misunderstood most of the time. But it says what? You will say to me then. Okay, so is Paul saying, why does he still find fault? Is Paul saying for who resists his will? Is Paul making a point here? Or is he just repeating what the objectors have to say about the subject of God's choice? Clearly the opposite. Um, Does this apply to Israel as individuals? Salvation? Is that what he's talking about here? Is he still talking about nations? Has he switched horses midstream? Is he now talking about a different subject? Um, A couple ways to summarize this in the context that we just looked at. If God has already decided to set Israel aside as a judgment against them in favor of this new church. Can God be blamed for that? Of course not. Not in the slightest. And then how can the Jews resist the sovereign will of God? If I wanted to summarize it, that's the way that I would word it. Moving forward, verse 20. Um, it says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? What point is he trying to make? This is going to be a long verse, but it it needs to be read. And by verse, I mean 12 verses from Jeremiah 18. Because again, he's making a reference to an Old Testament quotation. So in order to understand why he's making that reference, because remember, we talked about the different ways that Old Testament quotations are used in the New Testament, right? So there's the obvious literal fulfillment. That's one option. We see that all the time through Jesus. And then there is this other one that Robert Thomas refers to as the inspired census plenary interpretation, which is a very fancy way to say that under the very small confines of the New Testament, the writer of this text is given in this inspired manner a new way to apply the interpretation of what happened in the Old Testament. Did they change what happened in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. But because this book is inspired, because they're being carried by the Holy Spirit, they can take this quotation and they can apply it within their context. But here's the interesting thing. That application is limited to that context in which it was applied. We can't take it out of that context because they interpreted it a different way than the obvious literal fulfillment in the Old Testament and then apply it to whatever we want to. It is only for the argument that that author is making. And they're only able to do it because they're being carried by the Holy Spirit. Because again, they're not making this up as they go either. They're being carried by the Holy Spirit. And so this only becomes inspired and a change And you'll see this after God shifts from Israel to this new body of believers that is the church. So those are our two categories of how we look at Old Testament quotations. Bear that in mind as we're going through that. That's just review because we talked about that more last week. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 18 of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Um, the wor- I'm sorry, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house. Th- and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hands of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel and it pleased the potter to make. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, 
deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, to destroy it, so that the nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil. I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I may speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plan it. And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I have promised to bless it. So now then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back. Each one of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say, it is hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans. And each one of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. So what is God actually doing with Jeremiah? He's making this example, two examples, actually. Because if you look at this idea, this motif of the, uh, the potter's clay, that's actually a thing that potters will do because there are different um, constitutions of different clays right? So some clay is more malleable. You can turn it into pretty much whatever you need to. Other clay is more limited in its function. And so you can only make certain things out of it. And the potter, as I've been told, doesn't necessarily know when he grabs the pot, which one it's going to be. Now that extending it towards just to give you more an idea about pottery, that doesn't reciprocate for God because God does what? He knows. He knows exactly what that clay is going to be. He knows whether or not it's going to what? In, in Jeremiah, actually submit to him, actually turn from its evil ways. And whether or not he has to ju- per, or do a judgment against them in order to get them to turn back. Like God knows that from the get-go. But the point that he's making is that their future, and we're, t- we're talking about the nation of Israel in the immediate context of Jeremiah, their future is malleable. It's something that could be fashioned on the basis of whether or not they turn to the Lord. And so that's our context He's saying that their future is clay in his hands in Jeremiah's day and that their future is contingent upon whether or not they do what they ought to do. And did they listen to Jeremiah? No, they didn't. Um, So that's kind of what he's getting at as we're moving through this. And so verse 21 says that, or does not the potter have this right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Again, the potter is the one who gets to make that decision. We learn from Isaiah chapter 29, verses 15 through 16, woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered an equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me or what is formed to him who formed it say he has no understanding. Right? So that's the context that he's looking at. These are things that the Jews would have known. They would have known the examples that Paul was making as he's quoting, or you should say paraphrasing these Old Testament quotations. Jeremiah 18 verse 6, which we just read, says that, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done? declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So nothing, and and all of this to be said, Israel had absolutely nothing to complain about because God formed them for honorable use, right? He gave them mercy. That's what we've learned from this context. That's the point that he's been making. 
uh, verse 22 says that what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? How often have we heard this being applied towards this idea of God creating man sovereignty, sovereignly, not making them part of the elect and choosing to endure them up until the moment where they were taken from the earth? Again, because if in hyper-Calvinism, in double predestination, you have this assumption that God has elected certain members for salvation and certain people, again, because God, it's active, God's making this decision for them to go the opposite direction, to go to hell for eternity. So that's the idea. And so they see, they see this and they say, well, that makes perfect sense because he's enduring these vessels, these sinful people for a period of time before he destroys them. That's their perspective on this verse. Um, let's talk a little bit about that subject. From Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few who find it. So the gate is wide and many people go on this path to destruction. It's not saying in Matthew chapter 7 that God is the one that's putting them on that path and keeping them and restrain, restraining them there by hardening their hearts against him because they're not the elect. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. We should all know this very well. Um, taking Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets? Who drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved? so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come to them at last. Philippians 3 verses 18 through 19 says that for many of whom I have often told you, now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. So if you are unsaved, if you're living out the desires of your flesh, not having the Holy Spirit inside of you to convict you and to make you better, essentially. That's the whole goal of sanctification is to walk with the Lord and be conformed to his image slowly, progressively over time as we cooperate with him. If, if you're on that other path, you are walking and building up a case against you. Because if you're saved by grace, then we have Jesus as our defense attorney. If you are not, then you're going to be judged by your works in the law. And all it takes is one bad decision to be separated from a holy God. So just keep that in mind. That's the context that we're looking at. Um, now, there's a very interesting thing if you're looking at this word where it says, again, end of verse 22, endured, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for uh, destruction. Now, this word, um, katarismena, is actually very interesting because it's in the middle or the passive. Now, this can get a little bit technical, but... It could be either. So if you actually look at the form in the Greek, um, they use the same form for the middle voice and they use the same form for the passive voice. But the meanings are different when applied to the text. I'm not going to make a big deal of this because we could probably spend an entire day going over the differences between the middle voice and the passive voice because everybody and their brother in uh, Greek... <laughs> um, everybody who's an expert on the subject has a different perspective on the middle and the passive voice. And they disagree with each other. And it's even said in textbooks now, you can read, that they're still determining whether or not um, 
people in the New Testament understood a difference between the two because the differences are so the differences are shown more in the future tense than almost anything else. But if you understand this as passive, it's going to say vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And the reason for this is because in the passive voice, the subject receives the action of the verb. So it is prepared for destruction. Well, the interesting thing is that if it's, the, if it's in the middle, which in the original text, it would have the exact same form as the passive, it would say something to the extent of vessels of wrath having prepared themselves for destruction. And the reason for that is because in the middle voice, um, it's, it's commonly understood as like a reflexive thing, um, but the subject does the action of the verb in a way that affects the subject. The understanding of it from like a Greek level is very minute, but the, what it actually translates to is very different. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. And the reason for that is because either way you can understand it within the context correctly, but, and uh, different lexicons understand it in different ways. If you go from one lexicon to another, it'll say, well, this verse is in the passive, this verse is in the active and they change it up a little bit or not active, but you know what I mean? In the middle, um, if it is understood in the middle, that drastically changes the point of this verse, because now it is the vessels themselves, which are preparing themselves for destruction, which does that align better with Jeremiah 18, where God is basically telling Israel, they have the choice, whether or not they turn from their evil ways, whether or not they're going to be eligible for this destruction. Yeah, it absolutely does. So that's what I'm getting at. And again, we're not going to make a big deal out of it, but that is the idea that we're carrying from Jeremiah into verse 22. And if you look at verse 22 without perspective on what Jeremiah is talking about, you're going to, you're going to miss the boat. What's more is that verse 22, as in reference to Jeremiah, is not talking about individuals. It is talking about the nation of Israel. Who does he include in that? He includes Judea and Jerusalem right? He's not talking about in the individual prayer lives of all of the believing Israelites in your day, Jeremiah. He's saying the nation, if you choose to turn from your evil ways, this is the option. Because again, uh, this idea, this false idea in Calvinism that God can't know that which he doesn't determine really misses the idea of contingencies in scripture. Like when, because it makes the presumption that Jesus um, John the Baptist, all the apostles were giving a non-genuine offer to Israel about the kingdom, right? They could have accepted the kingdom because it was an offer made by Jesus. You're, you're, t- you're basically calling Jesus a deceiver if you're saying that these things weren't determined. And we could get into more of that later. <clears throat> we don't have a lot of time. So we'll read verses 23 through 24 next within the same vein. And it says, he did so, did what? endured with patience these vessels, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So he's doing a slight shift. He's saying that these vessels of mercy, this position as a vessel of mercy, is not just simply the Jews. God has crafted the church 
into vessels of mercy. And this vessel of mercy is through whom the, the, the conduit in which the gospel gets to all nations. And we are crafted as a vessel of mercy. That is a benefit to us. We've talked about that before. God could have raptured each one of us the moment we were saved if the whole goal was to get us saved. But the goal isn't just to do that. It's to be a blessing on the unbelieving world and making it so that more of them can get what? Can get salvation through faith alone so that they can trust in the provision Jesus made for them on the cross. And so that's kind of the point that he's making. He's not trying to build this great theology of the sovereign choice of God in a way that had never been described in the Old Testament. That's not what he's trying to do. Um, so keep that in mind as we're going through this text. Next, reading verses 25 through 26, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and here are her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Long quotation from Hosea. There are actually two long quotations from Hosea that these are found in. Um, but the context is worth it to the point where it's, it's worth our time to look into them. So the first one's going to be in chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. It says, starting in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her the vine guards, vine guards, or yeah, vine yards, sorry, and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. And at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, and in that day, pause for a second, we're talking about her who comes out of the land of Egypt. We all know whom um, is being discussed. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things in the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer declares the Lord. And I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so we could get into the nuances of this. We don't really have enough time. People look at this as a either direct fulfillment or an indirect fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, and they get all in the weeds having debates about that not really relevant to us today because what are we trying to do? We're trying to get the big picture of the chapter nine of the book of Romans. I'll read the next quote and then we'll talk about that very briefly. It says the word of the Lord came to Hosea. This is chapter one, verse one, all the way through verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Really shows you how lightly God looks at disobedience by his nation. These people that he chose as a vest. Um, 
a vessel of mercy. So when they are, he looks at it as adultery. It's very serious to the Lord. And he says, he went and he took Gomer, the daughter, terrible name for a girl, Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. And I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war, or by horses or horsemen. And for when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people for you are conceived and bore. Or you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to him, you are not my people, it shall be said to him, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. There's a lot in here because we're talking about how the nation's rejecting God. We're talking about how God's going to judge them for that rejection. We're talking about how God is going to what? Not decrease the number of the descendants. Why? Because of the Abrahamic covenant, because God promised not to, even in the midst of their uh, disgrace, even in the midst of what they've done, God is still giving them this picture, this future. And what's more is that he's going to take them from this position of not my people. And he's then going to what? He's going to bring them and install them in the land. It says he's going to sow them there. Like as in, he's the one who's planting them. He's the one who's doing the work. And what's more is that at this point, they will have one head. I wonder what he's talking about, right? As they're being installed in this land. So just bear in mind, like these two verses both talk about really the depths of their depravity, but the overarching picture is the fact that even in the midst of that, God is going to restore them. And so when he's bringing this up in the verse, we have to keep in mind, because remember, it says in verse 24, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea. So he's making an Old Testament quotation, which pertains to the failure and restoration of Israel. And he's taking that and applying that to this concept of the fact that God has chosen to take us in addition to them. So if you're just looking at it at face value with those two things in mind, what we would actually, what I glean from that is that he's making the point that we're in this period where they have been rejected, which actually aligns with chapter 10, where God has punished them for what they've done. He has now allowed those who are of the remnant of Israel to be installed in this new creation he calls the church. And he is allowing the blessings through the Abrahamic covenant to be overflowing being in the church, and we are actually able to do the work as a vessel of mercy. It doesn't mean that they're divorced forever. That's the whole point in these two quotations is that there's going to be a future restoration. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Verse 20, uh, 27 and 28 is actually what that's supposed to say. It says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant 
that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on earth thoroughly and quickly. Well, if we read that in context, Isaiah 10, 20 through 23, says that in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Israel, so no more lean on him or be struck to him, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. And a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob for the mighty God. For though your people Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. So all Paul is doing is bringing up the divine purpose of God in the fact that God is going to preserve that remnant. Big promise. Verse 29, and this is where we're going to close. I just realized what time it is. It says that, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a prosperity, we would have become like Sodom and would have been resembled Gomorrah. God could have decimated them. He could have. It would have been just to do so, except for the fact that God has determined that the blessings to the earth are going to come through these people. And it is certainly showing his glory that he can take people that completely rejected the Messiah and install eventually the king of God's own choosing on the earth. And so when we're looking at Romans 9, say this in closing, that's our perspective. There's more that could be said about it. We're out of time. But if all you were looking for is a way to be able to interact with the opposition to um, Romans 9 or the misuse of Romans 9 for Calvinism, it's not hard if you actually look at the Old Testament quotation. You don't even have to remember anything we just talked about. Just remember that when he talks about the things in the first I don't, 13 verses, he's making reference to who they were, Israel. He makes it clear that that's the context. And then you can just say, oh, I'm just going to use the notes in the middle of my page that give me the verses that are being referenced. Let's go look at the Old Testament. Let's see if it is what you think it is. That's all you have to do. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your promises. You are the one who has promised a restoration to Israel. You are also the one who has promised salvation to us. And we see in the fact that you have retained the promises throughout all of history to your children in Israel, that you will also retain the promises you made to us. These are great things, Lord, and we're grateful for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.